Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to ToledoCalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Dr. Nunley is a professor at Evangel University. He leads teams with the Center for Holy Land Studies. Um, But even more than any of those things that he does, he has a deep love for God's word and a calling from God to teach people and to show people how to understand God's word in a way that is life-changing. He wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. Are you familiar at all with the book of Acts, Calvary? Okay, so he's going to take us from where we've been in Acts chapters 8 and 9 and lead us into Acts chapter 10 today. We are privileged to not have the guy who wrote the book of Acts, but the guy who wrote the book on the book of Acts. So would you give a great big welcome to Dr. Wave Nunnally as he comes to teach us today. Thanks again. Blessings to you, Calvary Church. Boy, it is a privilege to be here. It's so neat to see things kind of come 180, to come full circle. And if you are a teacher of, at any level, if, if you are a, a mentor at any level, if you have been a role model for anyone, including children, your own children, then you know the kind of pride that I feel and inputting for years into the lives of people like Pastor Chad and other folks on your pastoral team who are being educated at Evangel University, Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, or even through our Center for Holy Land Studies that leads study trips in the land of Israel, introduce people to their own Bible, context of their own Bible firsthand, in your face, reality right in front of you, where faith becomes sight, then you know the kind of pride that I have in seeing someone continue to develop and God use him and be used, allow himself to be used by God and other folks as well on your pastoral team. So I am really privileged and honored uh, to have this um, opportunity to share with um, the uh, body of Christ at Calvary Church. Uh, This morning... We're going to be looking at um, the first half of Acts 10, and you've been in a study for some months, years, on the book of Acts, yeah? It took my Sunday school class three and a half years to get through it, so don't worry. You're in good hands. You're still in really good shape. The the clock is ticking, but you're still in good shape, okay? We can still bring this thing home. So uh, we're going to be looking... To go forward, you've got to look a little bit backward uh, in time to see what is it exactly that God was doing, a part of his big picture plan, that Acts 10 is not an accident, it's not a glitch, it's not a random event, it just didn't happen, uh, but it's a part of a big picture plan that is kind of unfolding really throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. So what I want to do is, is to situate it in the literature we call the book of Acts, what part does it play? but also in this kind of big picture plan that God has, yes, for the Jewish people, for the land of Israel, but also to the ends of the earth. I hope that comes together for you uh, this morning as as we consider the first half of Acts chapter 10. Uh, Next. Okay, we're going to be doing a lot of geographical context because if you see the movement from internal and then outward, then you are getting the message of Acts chapter 10 and indeed the whole book of Acts. So we're going to be using some satellite technology. I've been involved with this project now for 24 years. And uh, 
declassified military data that's digitized and then put on a, a very accurate terrain model generated by the Israeli government gives you this. This is not a lot line drawing. This is actually a picture from five miles above the earth from outer space. If you saw Harrison Ford in Patriot Games, this is the kind of stuff, tasking satellites to take pictures of important locations. So here we have the Dead Sea, the Jordan, Lower Jordan River coming in, Jericho, the Judean wilderness is this white chalky area. Right here with the red circle is the area of Jerusalem. Then you have this kind of spiny hill country that runs north and south for the land of Israel. And then you get the seacoast. Here's Tel Aviv in the larger red circle. So that might give you a little bit of idea as we process through our study for understanding the context, the geographical context of these Bible passages. Next all right, uh, Jesus starts this outward movement. This, it starts small and then goes larger kind of movement. This is situated in his teaching to his disciples. He presented a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. A man took it and sowed it in a field, and this is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's full grown, it becomes the largest of the plants, and the birds of the air make their nest in its branches. It goes from small to big. Do you get this? All right, then the next passage. Right before Jesus left... He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's about to ascend into heaven. His ministry has been completed. Death, burial, and resurrection are in the rearview mirror, and he is just about to go to heaven. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's fine. Everybody's good to go with that. That's where they were at the time he said that. All Judea, great. This is wonderful Jewish territory where people love God and they believe in the Bible and they serve him, serve, love one another as neighbor. And, and But then, and Samaria, whoops, I'm not sure I'm signing on for that. We don't like them and they don't like us. You remember the woman at the well in chapter four of John? Why are you asking water from me, a Samaritan, and then in parentheses, but it's part of the text. It's part of the Gospel of John. It's not inserted by editors or translators, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What's up with this thing about Samaria? That's not in my paradigm. That's not in my wheelhouse. That's not in my safe zone. That's not in my comfort zone. I'm not so sure about that. The other two I'm good to go with, but um, maybe you misspoke. Uh, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, look, I've, I've got fish to fry. I've got a family to take care of. I want to stay here in this safe area where we've, we're all Jews and we all believe in the same God and the same Bible and we live our lives largely the same way. But this remotest parts of the earth is going to really stretch me. I'm not so sure about that. That's why it's important to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because outside our comfort zone is outside of oftentimes our feelings of safety and capability. But the Spirit of God enables us to do things that are really not in our wheelhouse. It's supposed to be like that. God intentionally stretches us and challenges us and puts us in places where we need to stretch and grow. That's part of his plan for us because he's so much more interested in our conformity to his image than he is in our being comfortable. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of any good parent. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem. We're in next chapter 2 now. 
And we're hearing that they're living in, they're in Jerusalem, and, but there are people coming from every nation under heaven. You'd think that was another shot over their bow. Samaria, remotest parts of the earth, people from all over the world are coming here. And so you'd think that they'd gotten on board with this. This is even written in their own Bible, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Take a look at a couple of passages. In the uh, book of Isaiah, we hear um, Jesus saying, slide, uh, we hear Jesus saying, or the Isaiah saying, the nations will come to your light. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Zechariah says, in those days, 10 men from the nations are going to grab onto the garment of a Jew saying, let us go and worship together with you on the mountain of the Lord because we know that God is with you. You hear in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, you hear Malachi saying, your eyes will see this and say, the Lord is being magnified even beyond the borders of Israel. And God says, I'm a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So they heard it from Jesus. Jesus didn't make it up. Jesus got it from his Bible, the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. So you'd think that these guys would be on board with this. But how many of you know culture is a really strong force in our lives? Peer pressure is a real strong force in our lives. Um, history, a background, family of origin, all of that stuff is a real force in our lives. But sometimes God has to push us he ha to get us where he wants us, not where we're comfortable, but where he wants us to grow into. He's got to push the envelope a little bit, and that's where the discomfort comes. That's why the title of this message is The Difficulties of Transition. Individuals, groups, families, and yes, even the kingdom of God. Next. In Acts chapter 8, you get another developmental stage taking place. A great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem because up to Acts 8, we're into Acts 8 chapters. And people are, the kingdom of God is still Jewish Christian believers in the city of Jerusalem. Can you believe it? We're, we've already got seven chapters in the rearview mirror, and yet the kingdom of God hasn't grown. What the, the, the good news has not penetrated beyond the borders, basically, of the city of Jerusalem. And so a persecution arose. They didn't end up getting pushed out because they heard the message. They took Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. They took that seriously, and they went out and did it. They were staying in their comfort zone because they're human beings just like we are. Hmm? So a persecution takes place. Bad? I don't know. You and I are downstream from that. That persecution pushed the apostles and the church outside of Jerusalem. And it, notice what it says in verse, in verse 4. Those were, who were scattered went about, about preaching the word. In some measure, you and I are sitting here because of that. So persecution bad, persecution good, both sides of the same coin. God has a plan. He's not audibling off. He's not Peyton Manning. He's not changing the play at the line of scrimmage every play. He's got a big picture plan, and he wants to move us forward in that, to take us from the creation and the fall, Adam and Eve, all the way to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And he's got a plan for us to get there. He wants to plug them into it. He now wants to, 21st century, 21 centuries later, he's wanting to plug you and me into that same 
big picture plan to redeem a people to himself. Next. So this is just a real quick visual. We're back at the, in the same satellite uh, data, and this is the city of Jerusalem. So this is my cheesy lack of artistic capability, lack of uh, computer expertise, uh, say they're going everywhere. They're going east or west. They're going north. They're going south. And I guess some of them even made it into the Judean wilderness, those who could had plenty of water or could handle thirst. So they're going all over. They are being scattered throughout, from Jerusalem outward. God's plan and vision is focused outward. If we're going to get on board with his plan, our vision has to be, help me with this, focused outward. Yeah. It's, it's not about us for and no more. It's to the ends of the earth, to the remotest parts of the earth. Next. Philip went down. This is just one example. Philip, because of this persecution, went down to the city of Samaria. Uh-oh. Samaria is, is layer caked in between Judea, which is Jewish, and Galilee, which is Jewish. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember John 4? All right. And so what does Philip do? He goes down to Samaria. God has pushed him out of his comfort zone, but not without preparation. This Philip is not Philip the apostle. This Philip is Philip the deacon from Acts 6. I know that you've all studied this, so I'm taking this for granted. You've already gotten it, you got it in your back pocket. This Philip was a Hellenistic Jew. He had absorbed Greek culture because he grew up in the Greek world. All seven deacons, they were all chosen because they were um, Jews from the Hellenistic or Greco-Roman world, not from the land of Israel. And so Philip is, has been prepared by being born into a family of origin, by born and being born into a certain location, and by being born into a certain culture. Do you think God was behind that? And then he sends him to a city that was very Hellenistic, very Greco-Roman, had been rebuilt by Herod the Great and named Sebaste for Augustus Caesar, another nickname that he had. Uh, he, was, he fit in perfect. He was ready. He was prepared by the way that God worked in his life up to that point to be ready to step into that role that God put him in. God takes us through transition times, no doubt about it, but he doesn't have us just plops us in there, throws us like a fish out of water. He prepares us. He goes before us and he prepares the way. He opens up doors. He helps make connections. And then he empowers us to walk through those doors, to deal with those transition times, those things that are different in our lives, things that are troubling sometimes, things that are struggles in our lives. Yes, he goes with us even through the valley of the shadow of transition. <laughs> Right. Next slide. Here we go. Philip goes from Jerusalem through the hill country of Judea. See this little borderline that I drew? Five miles north of Jerusalem, and you're in, you're in Samaria. You move from Jewish territory into this territory of those other people, those folks we don't like, those folks that are not like us, those folks we don't want to have anything to do to. Five miles north of Jerusalem, he's already in Samaria, and he goes to its capital city, to the heart of the thing, and uh, begins to preach. Miracles take place. People get saved. Folks are being delivered from demons, and people are being baptized in water under the ministry of Philip. Things are happening, but God's not done with Philip yet. He could have set up first AG Samaria and settled down there, but next slide. 
But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, time for you to leave. Time for you to get up, pull up roots. I've got more fish for you to fry. Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Next slide. This is outside of Jewish territory too. So he backtracks up through the Judean hill, the Samaritan hill country into right about here, Judean hill country, goes through Jerusalem and starts down that desert road that goes toward Gaza. Most of you have heard of the Gaza Strip, right? Okay, that's because the city of Gaza is there. It's one of the five great Philistine cities of the time of Saul, David, Solomon, right? And so forever this has been enemy territory. Saul, David, Solomon's time, this was Philistine country. Now it's very Hellenized, very Greek, very Roman, all up through this coast. It's all Greco-Roman and really outside of the land of, of people who were strict observers of biblical Judaism. And yet here we got Philip who's been softened up and taken to Samaria. Now he's being taken down in the direction of this coastline that is eaten up with paganism and in everything that's totally the opposite of Torah observant Judaism. And yet he doesn't even make it to Gaza. What happens is he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian, that's not Jewish. And eunuch, he's had his parts rearranged in a sense that he can't even convert to Judaism. So he has two strikes against him. That's the reason that he asked the question, look, Philip, here's water. What is it that prevents me from being baptized? He fully expected to hear, well, you were born to the wrong country, the wrong nationality, the wrong parentage, and you don't have the right body parts. Sorry, this is where your spiritual journey ends. But what did Philip say? Nothing. And he baptized him in water. An Ethiopian eunuch goes off to back home to Ethiopia and is the beginning of that great church that still exists today and has resisted in the face of persecution and communism and, and imprisonment and torture and every, having their churches bombed. You've seen it on your televisions. You've heard it in your other news outlets about still about Islamic extremists who are persecuting the Coptic church of Ethiopia and of Egypt. This is the beginning of that great movement that sweeps northern Africa and brings Christianity to that part of the world, light to that part of the world. How does that happen? Philip's willing to put himself in a position of difficulty and um, unfamiliarity. He's willing to flex. He's willing to change. And God's spirit is empowering him to move beyond his comfort zone. Help me out with this, ladies and gentlemen. I know if you're not in one of those transitions, you've got one in your very near future. It's what God does. It's the way that life works, transition times. And yet he is with us even through the valley of the shadow of transition. Exactly. All right. So after the baptism of the eunuch, he never even makes it to Gaza, but he's taken over to this place that the scripture says is Azotus. Next slide. Azotus is Old Testament Ashdod. Well, that's another one of the five great Philistine cities. So he's still in enemy territory. And Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all of the cities, all up that pagan coastline. Yes? 
outside of the Judean hill country on the, on the pagan coast until he came to Caesarea. So Peter is not the first person to um, establish a beachhead in Acts 10. Philip is already there two chapters earlier preparing the way for the coming of Peter and the preaching of the gospel as we read about it in Acts chapter 10. On the next day, we jump to Acts 21. Philip is still there, chapters and chapters, years and years later, when Paul comes back through there. He's settled down, Philip has, in this pagan city of Caesarea, the city built by Herod the Great, the greatest port in the whole Roman Empire, and he has established himself. He started, he was married and started a family. He has four virgin daughters who were prophetesses in the early church. So Philip is still there and actually entertains Paul puts Paul up in his own home at the end of the book of Acts when Paul's coming back on his, from his last missionary journey just before he's arrested in Jerusalem and then sent off to stand trial before the emperor and then Paul takes the gospel to the ends of the earth all the way to the capital city of Rome. Next. Here's the movement from Azotus up the coast, past Tel Aviv, which won't be there for another 19 centuries, but just pretend, okay? He, no stopping off for shopping and sightseeing. Uh, he does go past Old Testament Joppa, which is absolutely fascinating because that's where, in the book of Jonah, God sent the first, in the Old Testament, the first great missionary to Nineveh to preach to pagans, geographical connection you, that if you don't know the geography of the world of the Bible, which every author in Scripture ex, ex, expects you to, to know, to be conversant in, then you don't get those kinds of connections. But these Joppa and Caesarea coast, coastal cities port cities are the jumping off points, are the launch pads for ministry to non-Jews so that God's kingdom, as Malachi said, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel, might be fulfilled. God knows it ahead of time, and then what he promises, he fulfills. Next. Here we have another example. We're still leading, this is all my introduction. We're still leading up to Acts 10, but before we get there, we hear in Acts 9 about Paul and about his salvation experience, his acceptance of Jesus as master in Acts chapter 9. It says, as he was approaching Damascus, the Lord appeared to him. Isn't that interesting? And this is important to Luke, and we know it's important because Paul's salvation experience on the road to Damascus, just outside of the city of Damascus, is repeated not just in Acts 9, but 22 and 26. Three times this story of Paul's conversion or his acceptance, his submission to Jesus as Lord and Savior and Master is repeated in the book of Acts. So we know that that's important to Luke. And indeed, it's a major turning point in the history of the church. Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and a major movement, a major uh, missionary effort westward directed intentionally toward non-Jewish peoples is begun as a result of this Acts chapter 9. Take a look at it on the uh, uh, satellite map. 
This starts in Jerusalem right here where he receives letters of permission from the high priest to go to Damascus, which is at the very end of the map. It's not the end of the world. It's just the end of the data. Um, And so Paul goes down through the Judean wilderness, takes a left at Jericho. He's got his uh, probably GPS or Google Maps or whatever, and he he turns this little green spot, a little um, vegetation um, explosion in the the midst of uh, non-vegetated wilderness. That's the oasis of Jericho, Elisha's spring is there. Then he turns left and goes up the lower Jordan Valley to the the Sea of Galilee, probably goes on the west side because that's the Jewish side. Then he goes up the, the upper Jordan Valley and right about here, he is in the territory of Herod Philip, youngest son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's dead. Augustus Caesar divides the nation up into the, uh, the three sons of Herod the Great, and Philip's territory is almost exclusively Gentile. And Paul is probably wondering, what in the world am I doing in Gentile territory? But then, after he goes past Mount Hermon right here, those of you who were on the Israel trip with us, we were there. He saw the snow cap on Mount Hermon, and the road to Damascus runs right past it, and then he is just about at Damascus, and, the, and God appears to him and gives him divine revelation. And what's really interesting is the rabbis of Paul's day, and Paul says, I grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was the chief rabbi. He was the leader of the Pharisaic movement at that time. The Pharisees, the rabbis, were teaching God does not do revelation outside the borders of Israel. That's something that is unique to the land of Israel because these are unclean and pagan lands and God has nothing to do with them. Already, even before Paul's call to be the apostle to the Gentiles, God is breaking down barriers, taking him through transitions in his life because he's learning God is great. Like Malachi said, even beyond the borders of Israel. God's blowing his paradigms. He's revealing himself. He's giving divine revelation outside the land of Israel. And so Paul has to do the math and realize, you know, some of the things that I thought, some of the things I believed, some of the stuff that I've accepted has got to go by the wayside because God is greater than what I heard. God's plan is bigger than what I heard. God's plan, even for me, is larger, greater, different, um, taking me outside my comfort zone than I ever dreamed. Paul, like he had Philip, Paul was being prepared to be thrust out into a world that he never dreamed could actually be brought to obedience to God. Amazing, amazing backstory stuff. Next. Then we have Peter, and Peter ends up in transition. First, he's traveling through all those parts. He's not just in Jewish Galilee and Jewish Judea. He's traveling through all of those parts, and we're told that he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Okay, well, that's maybe an unusual name, and you are not from there, and it's a different language that that word is coming to you from. It's Old Testament Lod, L-O-D, which only occurs two or three times in the whole Bible. But the question is, who lives there now? Where is that? If Peter went, notice it says, 
He came down out of the Judean hill country, out of his place of comfort, out of his comfort zone to Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas. This guy was, was sick, paralyzed, and God healed him. And it says that everybody heard about it. And in Lydda and in all of Sharon, they saw this miracle and they came to faith in Jesus because of it. But again, where did this happen? It's always important to know who said what, where did something happen, what happened here before, because that's backstory. Paul Harvey, come on, guys, old timers, help me out here. Yeah, the rest of the story. So let's take a look at it. Jesus, or rather Peter, goes down from uh, Jerusalem out of the Judean hill country to Lod, Lydda. It's the coast. Paul, Peter's out of his comfort zone. He's in the world of Greco-Roman culture, language, uh, religious practices, social systems. Uh, and at Lydda, there, God reveals himself again, his power by healing. It's like, wow, never thought that that would happen, but it did. And Peter's paradigms are blown and God is preparing him for even more of this kind of stuff in the future. Next passage. It says in Joppa, there was one named Tabitha. You may remember she didn't get healed. She got raised from the dead. She's dead. They asked Peter to come down and don't delay in coming to us. And so when she's healed, it became known all over Joppa. Now, again, where is Joppa? Next slide. They, they come to the Lord. He moves from Lod, Lydda, even further, closer to the coast, and he's right there at Joppa. Well, that's a great Jewish port that Jonah went out of in the Old Testament, but by this time, the whole coast is Greco-Roman. It's Hellenized to the max. And so Peter is way outside of his wheelhouse. He is so far beyond what he was let reality he was living prior to Acts 9 that he, Peter's becoming another person slowly but surely. Now watch how God softens him up and prepares him even further. Next slide. It, he was staying in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. How many of you have read the Bible enough to know that the Bible doesn't just take tangents and include irrelevant detail? Okay, so this means something. It's supposed to mean something to us. Tanning is an unclean occupation, according to the rabbis. In Judaism, tanners weren't even allowed to live inside the city limits. Why is that? Because they're working with parts of dead animals. And there's always the possibility of ritual impurity. And so watch this. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, if you'll jump into Acts 10, whose house is by the sea. Tanning operations need lots of water and they need lots of salt. Why, they, why is he staying by the sea? It's the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. Makes perfect sense. There's not anything out of place in the Bible. There's not anything wrong in the Bible. If there's ever anything wrong, it's usually with us. I don't know if you've noticed that before. It's a mirror. It's simply showing us for who we are. Nothing wrong with the Bible. Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Peter, this guy who says, look, I've never touched, I've never tasted, I've never eaten anything unclean. All of a sudden, he finds himself staying at the Motel 6, and the manager is Simon the Tanner, <laughs> right? So he's, he's getting ready for Caesarea. He may not think he's ready, but yeah, he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. He really is ready. Next slide. 
Uh, so, movement from Jerusalem to Lod, Lydda, to Joppa, and now he is fully entrenched in this Greco-Roman pagan culture of the coastline. And then what's the next jump? His next jump is from Joppa straight up the coastline to Caesarea, and that brings us to Acts chapter 10. Next slide. There was a certain man at Caesarea, and his name was Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Again, no irrelevant detail. There was a man at Caesarea. Caesarea, my goodness, if you want to talk about paganism, Caesarea is the Roman capital of the land of Israel, what they called the province of Palestina. That's where we get the word Palestine or Palestinian. The Roman name is Palestina. It's a perversion of the word Philistine which is really interesting. Again, perennial enemies of the people of Israel. But this, was, this uh, city uh, of uh, Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, who every good Jew hated his guts. And Caesarea was the cap Roman capital. Jerusalem was still the Jewish spiritual capital, but Caesarea was the Roman capital of Israel. In addition to that, it was the greatest port in the whole world at this time, built out on artificial harbor, built by incredible engineers by Herod the Great himself. And it was the seat of paganism. In fact, the great revolt that resulted in the destruction of, this, uh, of the temple in Jerusalem, do you know where that revolt started? Caesarea. Do you know how it started? As a race riot. you know why it started? Because one day on the Sabbath... Jews were going to the only synagogue they had in Caesarea, and when they showed up at the door, there were pagans who were sacrificing pigeons to pagan gods on the steps of the synagogue. A riot ensued. It resulted in a, it spread, became a revolt. The revolt from 66 to 70 AD and the destruction of all of Jerusalem, including the temple. All of that happened as a result of this racial, religious, ethnic conflict that's where the powder keg, the spark was started at, you passed the test. I'm a professor. I get to do that. Totally legal. But you passed. Mazel tov. <laughs> Or whatever. All right. So not only does Cornelius send for Peter, he gathers a whole bunch of people together. This word is going to get out. Somebody's going to leak. You're not familiar with leaks. Have you ever heard of DC? Yeah, okay. So they got their leak. Peter says, there's no way I'm going to get out of this alive. There's no way I'm going to maintain my reputation after this. But Peter has been in process. Everywhere God called him, God did crazy cool things. The healing of Aeneas, the resurrection or the resuscitation of Tabitha, the, the, the kinds of things that are going on inside Peter. Let's watch another one that's going on to prepare him to minister in this kind of con context to a not, just a, not just a Roman, but a Roman soldier. And not just a Roman soldier, but a leader of Roman soldiers. Peter's going to have to go into that situation and effectively minister the gospel. You think the fisherman from uh, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you think he's capable of that sort of thing? I don't. But God is. God is. What he calls us to, he then enables us to do. What was it that Acts 1.8 said? 
When the Holy Spirit comes on you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? It's not you get out there and do my will in you, your strength. It's whatever I call you to, I'm going to prepare you. I'm going to enable. I'm going to divinely uh, uh, equip you, empower you to do what I call you to do. That's whatever it is. Be a parent. Be a Sunday school teacher. Work at a soup kitchen. Do anything that it is outside your comfort zone when God calls us into this. A, he's going to walk with us through it. B, he's going to bear fruit through us. And C, that fruit's not going to be born by our best intentions, by our own willpower. It's going to be happening because the Spirit of God enables us to do stuff that we don't think we're even capable of doing. It's never been about us. It's never been about our New Year's resolutions. It's never been our stick-to-itiveness, work harder, work longer, work smarter. It's never been about us pulling us ourselves up by our own bootstraps to meet God's expectations. It's always about his empowerment because then when it happens, then when it happens and you draw the line and total it all up, when, it's, when there's a win, God is the one who gets the glory, not us. He doesn't call us to do stuff in our own strength. That's not his point. That's not transformational. He calls us to do exceptional things and things outside of our comfort zone because he wants to show himself great through us. If, we can, if he calls us to do stuff we know we can accomplish by our own willpower, by our own creativity, by our own hard work, who gets the glory for that? Who's glorified by that when it's all said and done? That's us. I made that happen. Aren't I awesome in this place? No, but God wants to get glory through us. So he's always going to be calling us into transition. He's always going to be calling us outside our comfort zone. He's always going to be calling us to do stuff that we know is outside, beyond our reach. And what's cool about it is when it happens, then we recognize great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Hallelujah. Next. So Peter goes from Jerusalem to Lod, Lydda, to Joppa, and then on to this port city of Caesarea. Let's take a look. Here's Caesarea from the sea. You see the uh, Roman amphitheater. Already you know you're in the land of non-Jewish culture, right? You've got a hippodrome right here where they race horses and that can be converted for gladiatorial combat where, where men are killed by other men or by um, uh, ravenous beasts and that were to the tune of thousands in this very hippodrome where that sand was drenched with human blood. That's not Jewish. Okay? You've got Herod the Great building this gigantic palace area that goes on for meter after meter after meter, even having a fresh water pool there in the middle of all this salt water. He builds his, his, uh, part of his palace jutting out intentionally and totally unnaturally out into the Mediterranean. He's, as this almost practically pagan king, he's conquering creation. He's conquering nature. This is Herod the Great. Then up here, do you see this shadow that looks like it's a circle? Those, that is the remnants of a great port. It's, it's the, um, uh, the foundations of a gigantic uh, wall to protect ships coming in to load and unload in the harbor from the ravages of the Mediterranean, even in the wintertime. Next slide. This is an artist reconstruction of it. Here you see, again, you, you can see the theater here. Uh, you can see the great port as it looked. It was the greatest in the whole empire at the time that it was built. 
um, the entrance here, and so you have an um, unnatural port. Nature, again, being overcome by the efforts of men. That's the nature of Herod the Great. God's nature is to overcome all kinds of adversity and impossibility through the power of his spirit. Not engineers, not personal effort, not human expertise or knowledge. That's the way that God works. That's the way he works. All right, this is a little bit incorrect because this is where the palace was discovered. So this is an older reconstruction that needs a little bit to be updated. This was Herod's palace area right here. Other than that, it's all good to go. Next slide. Here we are in Cornelius territory. Now we're finally out of the introduction and into the message. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, this is Cornelius, clearly saw in a vision, whoa, now God's not just revealing himself outside the land of Israel. He's revealing himself to non-Jews and to a Roman and to a soldier and to the, and to a so, and, and to the army leadership centurion. And it's, it's also interesting, the ninth hour of the day, this translates into 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., the rabbis had ordained, this is when the, the continual burnt offering of the evening, it's supposed to be morning and evening, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So Cornelius is a devout man. He's a seeker of God, but he's also doing his daily devotions. This is when you're supposed to pray. Prayer and sacrifice were supposed to be offered up at the same time, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. So while the sacrifice of the evening whole, uh, continual burnt offering is going on in Jerusalem in the temple, Cornelius is also praying. He's of observing a traditional period of time. It's like going to church on Sunday. Guys, I want to tell you this. I think there's, a, there's value in discipline and inconsistency. And if you have a specific period of time in prayer, don't be surprised if God doesn't show up and reveal himself to you right there. I know you're just touching the bases. I know you're just, it's a good discipline or doing your daily devotions or going to church on Sunday morning or whatever it happens to be. Just please know that you're not just putting in your time. You're not just punching the clock. This is not just some humdrum thing where you're checking a box. God will often honor. He will meet us at that point where we discipline ourselves, where we set aside time, where this, there's this consistency in our lives. Never mark that off as, oh, well, I'm just marking time. I'm just checking the box. Yeah, I went to church this week. Um, God will often use that. He will meet you. Has he not already? Have you not already heard truth and felt that cleansing power of his word? Have you not already sensed his spirit? He meets us in these times. Never discount those. Cornelius sure didn't. So, at the ninth hour of the day. Next. The next day they were on their way. Cornelius sends some uh, messengers. Please, Peter, come up here and bring good news to us. That at the same time, Peter's on the housetop at the sixth hour. Translation, lunchtime. It was six hours noon. So Peter became hungry. Again, do you see how the Bible connects? We start reading context and get backstory, and you understand, okay, it's lunchtime. Yeah, time to eat. Well, guess what God's vision to Peter is about? It's about food and about eating. Fascinating. And I know we're headed toward lunchtime, so I'm not going to belabor that point. Right? But he was desiring to eat. And while they were fixing the food, he fell into a trance. Literal translation, he became astonished. In, in Christianity and Judaism, you don't have out-of-body experiences. 
You, you don't have mind-altered experiences. So be careful with that word trance. It shows up again with Paul in uh, the temple later on in the book of Acts. The word is ecstasis. It means some kind of, um, I was, he was astonished. He was amazed. You see the same word in ecstasis, that phrase showing up in the gospels where when Jesus heals someone, the crowd is in ecstasis. It doesn't mean they're having an out-of-body experience. It doesn't mean they're experiencing an altered state of consciousness. What it means is they were amazed. They were astonished. So for us in English today, we use a phrase freaked out, which it can be both positive and negative. Freaked out means, and negative means scared, you know, kind of afraid. Uh, good freaked out is, man, that freaked me out, man. That was so awesome. Yeah, let's do that again. The, 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 the famous war cry of the redneck, hey, y'all, watch this, you know, kind of. Um, <laughs> totally legal because I am one. So... Next, uh, next slide. Peter beheld the, the, and the sky opened and a certain object like a great sheet, probably better translated sail. And notice where he is. He's in Joppa. Joppa is a seaport. It's right beside the sea. Totally contextualized, makes complete sense. By the way, Paul was probably not a tent maker. He's probably a sail maker. Same word. Okay. So, uh, Great, a great sail coming down, lowered down, and in it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. How many of you guys know enough about the kosher system, the biblical kosher system, to know some four-footed animals like horses are not allowed of Jewish people? They don't have a cleft foot, okay? So you've got both clean and unclean animals, and then that phrase crawling creatures is a uh, echo back to Leviticus chapter 5 where it says creeping or crawling, squirming creatures are not allowed in the Jewish diet. And so the voice says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. You see, Peter's being stretched again. He's been stretched for a long time, but he's getting a big, good, hard stretch now. I mean, we're in Pilates class. You know what I'm saying? Peter is really on the rack right now. Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. You see his response to this? Can't do that. Can't go there with you, God. Watch what God does with this. Next. The voice came again. What God has cleansed, no longer consider holy. I want you to do some math with me real quick, but it doesn't involve Arabic numerals. How many of you know that this vision that Peter had was not about eating and it wasn't about food? And it wasn't about animals, and it wasn't about the kosher system. God's preparing him. What's he preparing him for? What he's saying to him about and the food is the immediate flashpoint, but he's talking about people. So immediately, men who had been sent by Cornelius, he was perplexed in his mind. When you are in transition, when you're going through these difficult, God stretching you, you're out of your comfort zone. <laughs> Are you sometimes confused and perplexed? Yes, so was Peter. Do you see that word right there? But God clears it up. He's got a way of dialing you in, and this is exactly what happened. While, that was, while he was thinking about it, men who Cornelius had sent came to Simon's house and appeared at the gate. God has a way, a good sense of timing where he just puts the puzzle pieces together and it all becomes clear. You got your marching orders and now it's all about you walking in obedience, number one, and you being empowered by his spirit so you're not out there flailing around in your own strength. 
You know, that's what, that's the way God rolls. He doesn't throw you to the wolves. He, he doesn't do weird and goofy things. He's, he's got Peter in this preparation process, just like he did with Philip, just like he did with Paul, right? You see how God rolls like this? He is a covenant keeping consistent, and even use the word logical God. He works that way. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I don't serve some pagan God that jerks me around and, and, and treats me like a puppeteer um, and does weird things and says goofy stuff, gets me off in a cult and something that's unhealthy for me. That's not the kind of God we serve, ladies and gentlemen. gentlemen. Um, next slide. He invited, Peter invited them in, gave them lodging. Next day, he got up and he went with them. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea, Cornelius, and everybody that he had gathered together, they're all waiting. They're all sitting there ready to hear the good news. So now we get to finally get to Caesarea. Next, that's Jerusalem to Lod, Lydda, to Joppa, up the coast to the capital, Roman capital of that world, the launch pad that connects Israel to the rest of the world now um, Peter's there. But guess what? Peter's just getting there. Philip's been there for years. You remember chapter 8? Preached from Azotus all the way up to Caesarea. So God's softening hearts. He's already making inroads into that culture. He sent Philip, just like Paul says, I planted an Apollos water, but God gives the increase. You see how that principle works? He's got a big picture plan. He's sent people ahead of Peter. He's been there working all along. And uh, when Paul gets there, again, there's Philip, faithful Philip, who settled down in that pagan city and started raising a family. you got to know he's continued his evangelistic efforts. Next. When it came about that Peter, uh, that Peter entered, and then so he hangs out with Gentiles. When he gets to Jerusalem in the next chapter, Paul, Peter went up to Jerusalem. Those who were circumcised, the Jewish Christians up in Jerusalem who had not been through this process, not been through that transition, not been empowered by God, not been given this bigger picture vision that it was the kingdom of God is bigger than us four and no more. They didn't know. They hadn't been through that. They took issue with him saying, you went in to Gentiles, uncircumcised men. You even ate with them. You broke bread with them. You fellowshiped with them. You ate their food. Ew. That's the way that the uninitiated, the person who's not been through the transition, looks at these difficult transitions that God takes us through. So don't just think that you're struggling on your own. You're going to be struggling with other people as well. But God has a plan. It's not accidental. He goes before us. He prepares us. He opens up and closes doors as he sees fit. And he empowers us to go through those points of transition. Watch what uh, the takeaway points to all of this are. First of all, God promises, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm sending you to the ends of the earth. And then he fulfills that. In the same book. In fact, it's so ironic, and Luke does this, I think, intentionally. He shows that the kingdom of God conquers the Roman Empire backward. The Roman Empire comes from west to east. The good news and the kingdom of God goes from east to west. And at the end of the book of Acts, the Bible says, And Paul arrived in Rome, and he was receiving anyone who would come. There's that any whosoever will may come. And he was preaching the good news quite unhinderedly. 
I mean, that's an off-the-chain good news, out-of-the-box kingdom of God, and people who are willing to go with God in this. These people have taken this message to the ends of the earth, and in Acts 17, it says, the people who have turned a whole world upside down have now come here. Woe be unto us. That's a Gentile perspective on good news and kingdom. But the this, this generation that we're looking at had turned their whole world upside down from east to west and everywhere in between. Next slide. Another, the good news is not limited to certain locations or people groups or language groups. The good news is unchained. That's one of the messages of the book of Acts. Next point. The kingdom of God, not just the good news, but the kingdom of God he establishes is not just limited to a certain people group with a certain hair texture, a certain skin color, a certain eye color, a certain accent or language. God's plan is to redeem a people for him like John the Revelator saw. And behold, I saw a multitude, and it was of every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every tribe, and they were all glorifying, praising the Lamb. That's what eternity is going to look like. That's what's going on in the kingdom of God, even in the book of Acts and should be today as well. Next, God often calls us to stuff and stretches us outside of our comfort zone. So be it. I want to be a better person tomorrow than I am today, but it's not going to just be my, by my best efforts. The Bible promises that we are being transformed from glory to glory until we are ultimately in his very image. That's the plan for us individually. So it's not about our comfort. It's about our conformity to the image of his blessed son. Point number five, whenever God guides us into these difficult transitions, he goes ahead, he lays the groundwork, he, does, he opens the doors, he makes the connections, he empowers us. This is all about his work working through us. Paul says, I do all this by God's strength that works mightily within me. I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me. We've always emphasized that I can do all things. What God is saying, it's no, you can do all things through me. I strengthen you. Yes? Next. Whatever God guides us into, he empowers us and enables us. It's not about us doing things by our best efforts. His empowerment is absolutely essential. Most things fall apart without that power of God enabling the effort that he's called us to. Next. Whatever God's plans are, are they're not going to be weird. They're not going to be random. They're not going to be glitchy. And if we've submitted to him to rule our lives, then he's going to guide us and he's going to put us as a puzzle piece into that big picture of what he wants to do in this earth. Praise God for that. We are part of something bigger than ourselves and it's not all up to us. Remember one great evangelist said, if I don't save the world, it's, I mean, it's up to me. If I don't save the world, it won't happen. That evangelist had a great fall just after that because it's not about us. It's about him. We do all these things by his power that worketh mightily within me. That's what Paul said. And we're no different. It's about him. It's not about us. Next, in our relationship with God, us today, where you sit right now, we're downstream from the events of Acts 10. Had that, had that uh, barrier not been breached, that ethnic, that religious, that linguistic, that cultural barrier, had, had the events of Acts 10 not happened, 
at that port city of Caesarea that was pointing outward to the west and the rest of the world. Had that not happened, it's likely that you and I would not be sitting here. Christianity would still be a small sect of Judaism relegated to the land of Israel. You're aware of that, yes? So we can give thanks that we stand on really big and broad shoulders. But not only that, what we can do is we can imitate that example of Acts chapter 10. We can allow God to move, to remove those barriers that separate you and me from people that aren't the same as you and me. Tomorrow, Dr. Martin Luther King Day. This is a great message and a great example for we dare not allow anything to separate us from other people in terms of communicating the good news and seeing them as potential members of this great, varied kingdom of God. Every, every kindred, every language, every tongue, every people group that, that John the Revelator saw worshiping God before the throne, that's our attitude, that's our view, that's God's kingdom. That's what he does through people like Paul and Philip and Peter and, yeah, you and me. Cool stuff. Last, the backstory is always important, guys. The backstory is always crucial to get context. And when we get context, we get backstory, we get the Bible in its proper context, we're getting God's pure unadulterated word rather than man's word. Are you aware that God's word always sets free and man's word will ultimately lead to bondage and often lead to destruction? I'm so done with the word of man. This is the reason why we're so careful to train folks like Pastor Chad and, and others to, to rightly divide God's word. It's, it has eternal power, right? It, it, it determines our eternal destiny. It, we've got to be like with electricity or like with hydropower uh, or like with the ability for procreation, like, like with the splitting of the atom. You've got to be really careful with those things. They're powerful things. And God's word is, it is, it is God's um, good news unto salvation. It's able to make us wise unto salvation. And so we have to be careful in how we read it how we interpret it, how we apply it to our everyday lives. And context is huge. It is absolutely critical. It is, it's something that, that has to be a part of that equation. I'm really thankful to have spent this time with you. I wonder if we could take a moment and seal it in prayer. Would you join with me? Lord, we want to give you thanks for the goodness of your word. We want to give you praise and adoration. You have a big picture plan that is so much larger, broader, um, more inclusive than any of us could ever imagine. We can't get our eyes, our, our head around it, Lord, but we ask by the power of your spirit that you change our paradigms, like with Philip, like with Peter, like with Paul, like with the early church. We want to ask that you do a work inside of us and broaden our horizons. We thank you that you're a God who's not satisfied with us where we are. You accept us right where we are, but you're never satisfied with just leaving us there. You want to stretch us, mold us, change us, challenge us, get us out of our comfort zone. And oh God, we ask by your spirit that you would do that and that you would give us the grace to be obedient and to flow with what you've got, to walk into those things.
things that we have said, nope, that's beyond me, that's beyond my ability, that's beyond my comfort zone. Give us the boldness, the the attitude of, of the apostles. Let us walk in their steps, Lord, and be empowered by your spirit to do what you call us to do. Lord, help us to see that we're important puzzle pieces that your big picture plan is going to be moved more more closely to its culmination, its completion, its fulfillment, if we will but walk in it as spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered puzzle pieces. Do that in us. And the transitions that we have in our lives, whether it's business or family or personal or uh, financial, whatever those transitions are, help us to trust in you because we've seen in scripture and even in our own lives, even in the modern day, you have been so faithful to walk with us even through the valley of transition. Do that in our lives, Lord. Call us and we will hear. Call us and we will respond. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Calvary Church.